Welcome back to Portrait of an Editor. I am Francis Lombard. In this episode, Durf Back Durf and I dive into the making of Kent State and the skill building and knowledge of the comic book medium he developed that made it possible for him to produce such a complex and comprehensive OGN. Regarding Kent State and Durf's other graphic novel, My Friend Dahmer, we talk about how he used the medium to create unseen moments. We also cover how he protects his his physical and mental health while working on such dark topics, and, and a look at today's social and political turmoil through the lens of the events of the 70s. Finally, we talk about the right wing's cultural warriors' attacks on My Friend Dahmer, libraries, and various other graphic novels. A reminder, please check out the Portrait of an Editor Patreon page. You can find my earlier interviews from all the way back to 2017, and it's just a buck a month to join. Now here's my conversation with Durf. Enjoy. Durf, welcome to Portrait of an Editor. For this episode, we're going a little different. Usually I have an editor on the show, but there's a number of reasons why I wanted to talk to you. One was, and we'll eventually get to it, about the censorship of Mouse. And then when I started reading your tweets that it's actually everybody... Sounded the alarms once Mouse was being attacked, but this has been something that's been going on. And as we before we started recording, you were mentioning it's really following a, a playbook. But also, it sort of got me off my ass to finally really read Kent State. I have to say, my friend Dahmer, which uh, Alex uh, Schumacher, who I've worked with with on decades of inexperience, turned me on to your stuff. And I read my friend Dahmer a while back and thought it was just an amazing piece of work shocking but just the uh, i don't know i don't know what to say i'm sorry i don't want to you know heap all this praise on it but kent state sort of follows up on it that it's a book that makes you sort of stop and think after you close you read the last page and (laughs) and um so i wanted to bring you on to talk about kent state because it really you know one of the things about uh, about that book it's like you're like what you know you can draw the line from May 4th, 1970, to right where we are now. I mean, for people listening who haven't made the time to read Kent State, can you just give us, like, a quick overview of that? It takes place in May 1970 at the depths of the Vietnam War in uh, Kent State University in in Ohio um, when an escalating series of anti-war protests over the course of a weekend culminated in uh, the National Guard being sent in by the governor, who was an authoritarian right-wing governor, to crush the protests. And something happened, and the Guard unit inexplicably uh, turned and opened fire uh, into a parking lot full of 500 students killing four, um, wound, shooting and injuring nine, uh, six of seven of whom were wounded critically, most of whom had books in their hands. They were walking back and forth to class, not protesting at all. So it was the bloody climax of what was really about six, seven years of increasing unrest in this country, mainly involving the Vietnam War. But it gets into the larger issues about uh, authoritarianism and overreaction and, you know, politics and manipulating media and all that stuff that we're seeing very much in play today. 
But it was a huge event when it happened. I mean, the entire country basically just froze in its tracks. It did. Okay. Because this was not at all typical of that time that, you know, protesters were, were shot like this. I mean, protesters were certainly beaten and gassed and all that stuff, but to actually kill them, that was really unusual. You know, mass shootings were rare then, too. I mean, it was not like now where... You know, a younger reader now grew up with bulletproof backpacks that probably say, yeah, who cares? I mean, you know, we face worse every day. But back then, it was 50 years ago, that was not the case. So, yeah, the entire country just froze. It was, uh, it, and it had a profound impact on politics and uh, subsequent events in this country, um, how the the Vietnam War was finally wrapped up, and Nixon, and all of this stuff. I mean, it just re still reverberating today, really. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was a great event, and it's just a great story, which is what attracted me to it. And I thought it would make, um, I thought it would make a good graphic novel, and I, I guess I was right. And how long did you work on it? I know you've been you're aware of it, been aware of it your entire life. But mm -hmm. when did you sit down and go, I got to get this out of my head and on paper? Yeah, yeah, it took four years. <clears throat> okay. So two years were spent in research, digging through archives, doing all that interviews and all that stuff I had to do, which is all documented in the back of the book where there's 30 <laughs> pages of footnotes. Yeah. <laughs> listing almost, uh, I'm talking about editing, listing uh, almost panel by panel where the source material came from for what's happening in the book. And then two years to draw it. So while I continued to research, I mean, I researched right up almost until the time I turned it in. So yeah, four years total. It was a it was a it was a daunting challenge. It was a it's a big book, first of all, almost three hundred pages, and very difficult drawing, um, very uh, very difficult research, which is something I enjoy. Um, my background is actually journalism, for years in newspapers, and my degrees in journalism. So it was a chance to use, you know, use those skills. And I, I, I did the same with my friend Dahmer. I really kind of approached that story the same way. The one question I've asked a few times on the podcast is, if, do you just move beyond the research and start working on the story you want to tell? And because of with my friend Dahmer and also Kent State, there is so much there. Uh, did you, When did you... And you said you were researching and also production. Did you have to just sort of say, either because of deadline issues or just I have enough to get moving on this? Was there was it an internal discussion with you, or was it like deadline issues with your editor and your publisher? Well, it was both those things. I mean, uh -huh. Kent State had a deadline. Okay. So deadlines definitely force your hand. And that last final year with Kent State, I was probably working seven days a week. Eight hour, eight to ten hours a day to finish this book. Um, it was a little tight, and I really could have used another year on it, you know, just to kind of take a little more relaxed pace. But um, we were trying to get it out in conjunction with the 50th anniversary of the shooting, so that was May 2020. So yeah, I got, I probably got a little bit of a late jump on it when I decided to go ahead with it, and that was my fault. Um, and deadlines have a way, you know, they have a way of forcing your hand. I mean, you got to meet that deadline. Now, it turns out that was yeah, because yeah. the pandemic hit, the lockdown hit, the release of the book got delayed until the following fall, and so it was all for naught. Um, my friend Dahmer was 
different because uh, that was my first book with a major publisher. So it was really open-ended. I worked on that book for 19 years. And it had uh, four different drafts before I finally got the draft that I sold to Abrams, who's my publisher. So that was a much more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of open-ended process. You know, I, I wasn't going to... I wasn't going to let that book go until I finally had this con- this book in my head. I finally got it on the paper, and that took a very a very long time for a variety of reasons. But people ask me, you know, why did it take so long? And, and my answer is, it took that long because that's how long it took. I mean, mm-hmm. every book is different, right? Yeah, there's a times that like I hear creators beating themselves up about stuff that, you know can't get it out, can't find a solution, can't find the ending to it, you know, or then you find out it's 10 years later or something, but 19 years later, do you feel that, what was it that you were looking for? Did you ever sort of figure out what you were looking for, for my friend Dahmer that made it finally, that you felt yeah. it was ready for, yeah. for public consumption? Yeah, I did. Um, <clears throat> a couple things were happening there. First of all, when I, when I started that process, when Dahmer was arrested. That was 1991. Um, I was a very different author. I was a very different uh, cartoonist. I was doing a underground comic strip at that time for those alt weekly papers that used to be everywhere and are no longer anywhere. Um, and having a blast with that, and it was this kind of goofy, freeform humor strip. And so I just did not. I'd never tried long form narrative before. I didn't have those skills. I didn't have those drawing skills. Uh, my drawing style was was not appropriate for you know a darker story like my friend Dahmer. So these are all things I had to acquire and had to master, and that took a little longer than I thought it would. I also had to get my head around it. You know, I, I early on I just collected material. I figured I'd do something with it eventually, but I wasn't quite sure what. And it wasn't until maybe 98, 99, that I figured, okay, now I have, in my head, I have this concept. I want to do a book. <clears throat> I want to do this standalone graphic novel that tells this story. Um, and graphic novels at that point, believe it or not, really did not exist. Yeah. There were only a handful of original graphic novels released every year, and certainly nothing about a serial killer. So I kind of had to wait for the business to catch up to what I was thinking. And eventually it did. But uh, in 1999, that wasn't the case. And I was trying to wrap my head around the narrative, and that took longer than it probably should have. And then finally, like draft number two or three, you know, the light bulb started to flicker on, and I was like, okay, this is what I'm, this is what I'm looking for. This is how I should tell this story. And I and I found the narrative arc, and once you do that, then things start to snap into place. And how did that carry over into Kent State? Actually, my friend Dahmer was not is the first book I started working on, but it was not the first book that was published. Mm-hmm. That was my initial my debut graphic novel, which is called Punk Rock and Trailer Parks, which is a fictional piece. And that's really where I learned. I mean, you learn by doing, you know. And I just sat down and I I punched out this book, which is 150 pages, 152, something like that. And it's a it's a self-contained narrative, and it's you know it's like it just snapped into place. Like wow, I'm really having fun with this, and it's this is how you do it, you know. And so then I took those lessons and applied it to subsequent works, 
And my friend Dahmer came out in, what, 20, 2012, I, I believe, in this country. And then I did a follow-up book, which was called Trashed, which is based on my experiences as a garbage man, um, also in the same town where my friend Dahmer took place, though it's fictional, but based on that experience. And that came out in, I think, 2015, and then Kent State was the next book. I mean, it was just the next in line. And I kind of have, you know, I keep a list of potential projects. I mean, I have, you know, things I want to get to. And Kent State was always on that list. But as I discussed earlier, it, it was a very daunting project, particularly artistically. And I just didn't feel I had the skills to pull it off. And, you know, before I finally decided, okay, this is the one. Um, that's just skill building. You know, you, you require those skills and you, and you learn and you, and you improve, hopefully, knock on wood. And so I just felt, you know, okay, now's the time. Now's the time to take this on. Some of the skills that we were talking before we started recording of just taking advantage of the, of the medium, of what it allows you to speed up time, to have various different points of views, also to slow down time, to take a point where you can have a page that's half text with an image right, right. Um, was those are the skills you're talking about like the medium um, well those then, are skills certainly that yeah. I had to learn um, writing the narrative where I really learned how to slow things down was with Mike Dahmer because that is such a you know it's a slow methodical march to the edge of the abyss and it's got a, a lot of very reflective scenes and scenes where, you know, a lot of really kind of spooky, quiet scenes. Um, coming from comic strips, you know, I, I, you have four panels or five panels, and you've got to make your point, make your joke, and then get out. So it's like this real, you know, it's almost like uh, rapid fire. And when I took that to my first book, which is just kind of this raucous, um, really fast-paced uh, story, which is fine because it's about punk rock, so that suits the subject matter. But I knew that coming into My Friend Dahmer, I was going to have to learn how to slow it down, and that's why it, it took four drafts before I finally... The first stories I told with My Friend Dahmer were too... Were too they were too cluttered, they were too fast-paced, it was too... Uh, um, uh, it just wasn't... You know, it wasn't didn't have enough pauses. And so that's something I had to work on. And I recognized that, and you had to work on it, and, and then you started stretching it out. And by the time I get to Kent State, you know, I've, I think I've, I've gotten a handle on all that. So I learned how to manipulate um, pacing. And Kent State's the same way. It has a lot of really quiet moments. Uh -huh. um, and I think they're – and then, of course, you know, the climax of each chapter, which takes place over four days – each day has a climax, usually at the end of the day. And so you build toward that climax, and then the next day you start building again. You know, it's kind of this odd narrative arc. <clears throat> but those quiet moments are great because that is where um, we learn about the people involved in this in, in this story. This, the story is told through the eyes and experiences of the four kids who were killed, plus one guardsman whose account I, uh, I had. So you've got these five narrative threads. And 
what I do is I, I actually put the reader right there on the ground with one of those five people, and we kind of walk through the story right by their, you know, right at their elbow. Uh-huh. So it's this very personal account of this, you know, this horrible event. But that's where you find the emotional power of the story is is through those five people because it's about actual actual people. And those quiet moments are very important for that because we learn about their hopes, their dreams, their fears, you know, all that stuff. So, I mean, it was it's it's not just throw away scenes for the benefit of pacing. I mean, everything has a point. Bring it up to like today when we were talking about sort of this idea of this obsession with guns, the whole thing about violence the, in the use of violent words. What your book did at the end is reminded me, and I've had this conversation, you know, with plenty of people about what, you know, especially growing up reading superheroes, what a bullet or a punch or a fall can do to a person. That's right. And because of the work and how you slowed things down and how we got to know people, you just realize what one bullet and and also what I felt with reading it is that that's it for the for those people the four people killed and you what you've done and why i just sort of had to take a breath at the end of it was you realize that you know these bullets what these bullets took away because of what you did in the beginning of just really letting us know who that these are real people first real people not characters so you spent so much time letting <clears throat> us know these real people and what they were doing and then seeing the violence and the idea of people calling for civil war today, I mean, what are we going to do? Take pot shots at our neighbors? Do we understand what a punch in the head does to a person? Or no, no. In the, uh, but you really, I mean, I think everybody should read this book before we start, right. you know, start talking about violence anymore. But Well, first of all, I don't think the far right really cares. No, I think they live in a Hollywood They're movie at times. with the concept of it. They're, they're, mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing they'd like more than to open fire on a... Yeah. On a crowd of uh, Black Lives Matters protests, that would be their dream come true. If they think they could get away with it, they would happily do it. Um, so, I mean, the difference between 1970 and now is that now we have a way to, uh, you know, troll the other side, to taunt them, to to prod them, to, you know, get their hackles up. Where in 1970, you really didn't have that. I mean, it was every bit as um, divisive a time and the the sides were every bit as far apart maybe even more so um but there were they they couldn't communicate with each other like they can now you know because the internet didn't exist so they each existed in their own world and there was a lot of uh, i don't know that was a different dynamic i mean the, the dynamic now is that you know the sides seem to enjoy just prodding the other i mean that's how they get their their rocks off Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the danger comes when it spills over into actual <laughs> events on the street, like January 6th or or some of the other stuff. I mean, just a couple days ago, we had those creeps in a U-Haul who were going to storm a, a, a gay pride march and presumably beat the crap out of everybody who got in their way, and the cops stopped them. Um I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that, you know, when it moves from concept to reality, that's when the danger happens. What is the difference between the weathermen who overshadow 
Kent mm-hmm. State, mm-hmm. with the far right that's now. I mean, the far right talking about the stuff that actually our government did do <clears throat> with embedding agents into these radical groups and trying to stir them up, and also what happened to the weathermen because of the you know some of the agents. I remember mm-hmm. you know, reading in the book of that sort of takeover. Of the weathermen oh, seem sure, to be yeah. the playbook. The same, the yeah, playbook's the same. Um, I mean, the weathermen, of course, were far radical left, mm-hmm. whereas these groups are far radical right. But at a certain point, the right and the left meet, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they meet at the same violent apex, and that's really what the weathermen were. I mean, they were moving into the realm of actual terrorism by the time they finally kind of consumed themselves. But uh, um, yeah, the same playbook was employed by the feds. I think you know, embedding themselves, infiltrating, and then disrupting. That was, I mean, that we're seeing that today. The difference is, is that you wonder, say, with the FBI, whose side are they on? You know, as <laughs> a pretty reactionary. So um, certainly the cops. I mean, I don't think anybody really trusts the cops to take on far right groups. They seem to be pretty buddy buddy with a lot of those guys. And in fact, there was, a, where was it, in The Guardian? I think there was an article in The Guardian about how many cops are actually part of these groups that they're, you know, supposed to be policing. Um, it's scary times, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it feels more like uh, the Weimar Republic in Germany than it does, like, 1970, honestly. You know, when you have the far right is just kind of spreading and spreading and spreading, and it's becoming more militarized, and, you know, we know where that led. Uh-huh. I mean, what was what was the final objective of the weathermen? I mean, other than I mean, the, the weathermen ca- wanted to be the vanguard. They wanted to set off a oh, it was all nonsense. Yeah, um, yeah. They wanted to set off uh, an actual revolution in this country. They thought there would be a. Uh, they thought that particularly uh, African Americans would rise up and Latinos would rise up and that they would start the revolution and the government would eventually topple and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was just total pie-in-the-sky fantasy. They dreamed of what happened in Cuba, where there was this scruffy band of revolutionaries in the mountains led by Castro, and then it spread and took over the country. That's what they hoped would happen here, and of course it was never going to happen here. But the the weathermen were not really uh, clear thinkers. But they were very destructive, and they destroyed, you know, the largest anti-war group in the country, which was SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. They took it over, and they burned it to the ground in the space of, like, six months, you know, which is something we're seeing now. I see that pop up now on the left, you know, let's burn it all down. I mean, what's the point of salvaging anything, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, we've been there before, and, and, you know, you're just playing into the hands of the right at that point. Do you think their influence on what was going on at Kent sort of, I mean, also, or just the background or just the use of them, of the weathermen and, you know, as the boogeyman out there sort of really got these soldiers into into a mind frame that allowed, yeah, and... Very much so. Um, The weathermen were already gone. They were already banished underground by the time Kent State rolled around, but their specter remained. And Kent State had been a weather stronghold. Um, a lot of the weathermen leaders had spent time at Kent State. They helped organize there. They were buddies with the leadership there. 
But the leadership at Kent State, the I'm talking about SDS at Kent State, that was finished too. Those guys, SDS, have been thrown off campus. Uh, their leaders had all been suspended and barred from returning to campus. So it was a spent force. But, you know, people like to use the specter of imaginary demons to further their own ends. We're seeing it today with Antifa. We're seeing it, which doesn't exist either. Um, it exists even less than the weathermen did. The weathermen were actually real. Um, we're seeing it with, you know, uh, BLM. You know, they're burning our cities to the ground. Well, no, 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 they're not. But, you know, I mean, it's just this this uh, alternate reality that a lot of these people operate, I mean, within, that gives them an excuse to bring the boot down. And so that's the, that's the same thing we're seeing today. No, when uh, January 6th occurred, <clears throat> there was this one person I know of who was there took pictures of being in the building and when somebody a friend of his started talking about oh i heard it was antifa or blm being in there causing the riots he was like no it wasn't i mean it, it, he was like i am a oath keeper we were there it was this that that he was like pissed <clears throat> that that rumor even though now his leadership is all doing no, everything yeah, possible. Yeah. <laughs> but but the leadership, uh, everybody's like, well, it's still BMM. You know, now with the, the hearings happening, it's like it was just, we were set up. It was a false flag. He had pride in going into to, uh, the Capitol. You know, if he still it, does or if he's changed his tune now that the indictments are raining from the sky. I, I don't know. But yeah, there's a couple people that I know. He's one and there's another one who was didn't enter the building but was on the outside. And, mm. you know, they've twisted themselves into pretzels into believing that they did the right thing. Right. And right. So, did, so did the weathermen. Sir. Yeah. I was wondering. You know, extremists are extremists. I mean, whether they're left or right. They're all kind of wired the same way. They're, they're, they, they believe that, you know, in the context of whatever great goal they're following, ordinary human life does not matter. And when you twist yourself into that state, um, you know, you can do some really terrible things. Now, the pivot and seeing this show is about editors. <laughs> <laughs> With your dealing with such a gigantic tome like Kent State and with all those strings that you're trying to just come, make come together, who did you use to as a sounding board? Was your editor involved in a lot of things? Or it sounds like when we first started talking, you really, there's a self-awareness with how you approach things and how you do the work. I mean, Who's also involved in you in producing some of your stuff, or is it just you're taking it all on and moving forward with it? It's mostly me, yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm the writer, I'm the artist. Um, <laughs> I've always worked that way. I mean, I you know, I think comics are very, uh, well, at least the type of comics that I've always done, are a very private matter. You know, it's one person thinking about something and producing something. So with one of my books, you know, every... Every word, every line, every shade is put there by me by hand. So you get this very personal work at the end of the day. Whereas, you know, mainstream comics, it's a it's a group of people. You know, something from Marvel or DC or Image or even some of the uh, even Scholastic. I mean, it depends on the project, of course. It's almost like a, a it's almost like a 
assembly line. You know, they, yeah. they just go through. They go from writer to artist to inker to colorist to letterer, and then pff, out the back end. And there's an editor that oversees it all. But with me, that's not that's not how it works. And my editor, who's very good, um, he generally comes in at the end, and and he has a very light touch. When he suggests something, it's usually an addition to what I've done. Well, maybe you can put a little more in there. It's like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. So he just he makes the books better. He doesn't like ride herd over what I'm doing. Um, I also have my wife here, who was a journalist for many years, a Pulitzer, won a Pulitzer Prize, in fact. Um, and she is a footnote nut, so she helped me with the footnotes. She took like four days off from work and and just copy edited the footnotes and really helped me whip those into line into shape which is great so i mean that's basically my support system right there i mean beyond that no it's it's all me are you thinking about when you come up to a sequence that this is how i approach it this is the best way the comics can do it are you or is it just sort of this is where I, I need to, I'm starting at A and I need to be to Z and you just, you let your creativity go or do you sort of plan out stuff when you're uh, addressing a sequence? Maybe, I guess for an example, the sequence at the end of the book when uh, the troops turn on the students and mm -hmm. then you really slow things down and right. we start seeing, you are talking <laughs> pres past, almost a little bit of past but present and definitely future actions. You're, all of that, if you really sit down and read it, you're you're experiencing that as a reader on those pages. Or is well, that's, yeah, that's a multifaceted question. I know, I'm sorry. Um, there's a lot of backstory with Kent State because, as I said, it's the, it's the bloody climax of like seven years of unrest. So there's a lot to cover there. But the trick was I didn't want to really get bogged down in that, you know. I wanted to just give enough to provide some context without, you know, like about the draft and how that lit the fire to this, you know, this mass unrest in this country, which is really something we haven't seen since the Civil War. As bad as you think 2022 is, or even 2020, 1970 was about 10 times as worse. I mean, it's one of the worst years we've ever had. It was literally campuses in flames, millions on the streets and crackdowns everywhere. It was horrible. Um, so you have to give some context there to, you know, it's like, you know, here's what happened, here's where we are. But I wanted to tell that story um, chronologically. I wanted it to feel very much like you're in the moment. So I didn't want to really get bogged down with that. So you have to give just as enough, you know, that was a bit, that was a bit tricky. Um, for the end sequence, getting back to, you know, comics can, tell a story that's unseen. Yeah. Um, particularly on that day, which was Monday, May 4, uh, there's, it was broad daylight. The place was crawling with photographers. Most of them were student photographers because Kent State had a very good photojournalism school. And so there were dozens of people out there taking pictures, and they're great pictures. You know, they're some of the most famous news photos ever taken. But the thing about those pictures is, is you know, we have photos, thousands of photos up until the moment that guard turns. And then we have that iconic photo of the guard opening fire. And then we have nothing for like, you know, five minutes, six minutes, 10 minutes until 
the photos of the carnage. And then there's all those famous photos of the wounded students and everything else. And the reason for that is because those photographers were in the line of fire and they very wisely, you know, hit the dirt. And for good reason, because one of the kids who was critically wounded was taking pictures. He was shot in the chest. So what I can do is that I can take all of the information I have, the personal accounts, the morgue reports, the wounded reports, and I can recreate those five minutes that don't exist. And that's what you're talking about, those 15 pages of basically people getting shot, yeah. which uh, has been described by some critics as Goya-esque, you know, the famous photo 1812 of uh, Francisco Goya where the firing squad is about to execute a group of uh, protesters, and yeah, that's that's that I think that's an apt comparison because I and I I felt it was really important to show that violence, <clears throat> and it is very very violent because you know the attitude in 1970, which we see replicated today, is that well we should have shot more of them, you know we should have shot a thousand of you to put an end to this period of student unrest in 1970. And we see that today. Well, we should have shot, you know, 100 BLM protesters. We should have shot, you know, this this anti, this pro-choice march. You know, we should shoot them. Well, it's all right. You believe that. Here's what it looks like. <laughs> Here's yeah. what it looks like when a copper-jacketed bullet over an inch long goes tearing through a parking lot of 500 students fired from a gun so powerful it can send one of those bullets straight through a foot-thick tree trunk and still kill the person on the other side. Here's what it looks like. And so that's what I did. And um, I think it's a very powerful walk-off. And really, the book ends almost right after the shooting stops. I mean, that is the walk-off. And that was by design because narratively, I was thinking, I want people to be left with this. I want people to be left with these images kind of burning their eyes. And, you know, when they turn that final page, they just kind of go, holy shit. I mean, that's what I was aiming for. Um, and I, I, I think I pulled it off. <laughs> and, and also, the, then you slap us one more time with the, the epilogue in, mm. in the White House, with, right, which right. is just another form of violence, which... Okay, so do you feel if they killed more students, seeing you research this, would that have put an end to all this? Or do no. you think? Well, yeah, okay. probably. I no, mean, really? It had a very chilling effect on the anti-war movement. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the student anti-war movement was pretty much over after Kent State. Mm -hmm. um, there was a couple reasons for that. First of all, the draft rules changed. You had a lottery now. Yeah. Um, where So everybody knew what their chances were of getting drafted and they could they could plan for that you know and also the war was starting to wind down i mean 70 was one of the worst years of the vietnam war and then in 71 nixon announced that they were we were going to start winding the war down it had nothing to do with kent state in nixon's mind it had to do with 72 which was when he was shooting for re-election <laughs> so he ended the war to further his own Re-election, which is a truly evil way to wage a war, as if any way to wage war is an evil. But um, so all those factors combined, and from a student's perspective, given all that, 
they thought, all right, I'm still opposed to the war. I'm still opposed to the draft, but am I willing to get shot for it? Well, not really. Yeah. So the student protests really kind of wound down after that. There were still big protests carrying on into 72, but uh, it wasn't on campuses. So, yeah, it had a very much, a very much had a chilling effect. Because I remember in the beginning of the book, some of the students are talking about how Nixon lied about the the war, Mm -hmm. that he he was now escalating it. And even the parents were talking about it at times. There was a couple scenes of their disappointment with what he was doing. So, I mean, I guess he saw the light at one point that the war was not going to... let him keep the presidency, basically, but it was had oh, nothing yeah. to do. Sure, that I mean, he knew when he took office that the war was lost. I mean, LBJ knew the war. Yeah, was. I mean, we know that now from the revelations, the later revelations by you know the 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 big shots in charge that they knew the war was lost in like '66, and they kept waging it and waging it. I mean, sort of similar to what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, you know, very similar. <laughs> So it's the same kind of, you know, mix of, I mean, politics is war, you know, war is politics, I mean, and uh, they're, they're inseparable. And so that's what we saw then. And then the politics are different now, but I mean, the, you know, the end result is still the same. It's this huge debacle and many, many people lose their lives. Now, you, the quote that you refer to about being able to create the unseen is like something I came across. The power of comics lies in creating the unseen. Are you going to take that to other work? If appropriate. I mean, I certainly did it in My Friend Dahmer. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. There's yeah. a lot of the the scenes in My Friend Dahmer. Um, I mean, that's not documented, you know. There's only a handful of photos from that time. But it covers our friendship together. I mean, that's the the uh, the basis of my friend Dahmer. We were friends. We went to the same junior high and high school, and we were friends from roughly age 12 until age 18. And then two weeks after our high school graduation, he killed his first victim and became a monster. So it's the story of the spiral down. It's not the story of the crimes. Um, and a lot of that, I mean, there were very few photos of that time. There's no film footage or anything like that. That stuff, material in that book, either came from my own memories, my own papers, um, the memories of some of my friends, or uh, sometimes from Dahmer himself, because, you know, he gave many interviews over the course of once he was caught. Let's see, he was caught in July 91 and then killed in prison, I believe, in November 93. Is that right? It's been a long time since I talked about my friend Dahmer. (laughs) I'm forgetting my, my facts and figures. Um, but he gave a lot of interviews during that time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it'd be like a little sentence, you know, well, you know, this happened. And I would have that sentence. I'm like, oh, man, I know exactly where that happened. I know I know the land, the landscape. I know the, you know, the topography. I could create that as a, you know, in some cases, a 10-page scene mm-hmm. just from a little, you know, line that he gave in an interview. So, I mean, that was where I really kind of, mastered that technique as you just described you're really a one-man show and you're dealing with something like my friend Dahmer or Kent State do you find these getting it out onto the page somewhat physically or emotionally exhausting at times how do you keep (laughs) yourself going and also protect yourself at times 
especially with some of the subject matter that, you know, right. especially those two books. Sure. Yeah. At a certain point with my friend Dahmer, I just kind of detached from the story. You know, it was pretty dark when I when I sat down and wrote the final narrative, and it didn't take long because I've been working on it for a long time at that point. But yeah, that was a couple of weeks that weren't a lot of fun. I tend to write. Well, my friend Dahmer can't stay there. I did write a script for both, just to kind of organize my thoughts. The fictional books I've done, I don't make of that what you will. <laughs> um, and then I thumbnail everything. You know, that's how I. That's really writing for me. Is I sit down and I make these little sketches of pages where I write the narrative and write kind of sketching the visual very roughly. And so I'm always seeing it, words and pictures together. So writing that script and writing those, maybe a little less so the thumbnail, because then I'm concentrating on the nuts and bolts of making comics. Uh, that was very dark with my friend Dahmer. And then when I got into the story, as I said, I, I detached emotionally, just kind of, set it aside and, and come went up to the side and focused on the details of the scenery and the settings because that was also my world. It was my high school, it was my mall, it was my town. And recreating those, you know, that was fun. Mm -hmm. So that's how I was able to find a little bit of uh, joy in that book, which otherwise, no, it was very, very dark. Um, Kent State was different. I mean, Kent State, I wasn't part of it. You know, I'm an outsider. So I had that distance. Yeah. Now, you know, when interviewing people who were there, and I interviewed, gosh, probably 50 students of 1970, I mean, those interviews invariably would end with the interviewee in tears. I can't tell you how many times that happened. I mean, it's still so powerful for them. They've never shaken that experience, you know. And they would all apologize for breaking down. I'm like, man, don't worry about it. <laughs> I mean, you know, but I didn't have that kind of attachment to that book. So it was easier for me to, to you know, write that. But, yeah, the, the end of the book was it was tough. I mean, that, the, those last 15 pages are, were hard to write. They were hard to draw, especially to draw because, you know, it's, it's bloody. And, you you know, I've gotten to know these kids as I've researched this book, and here I am writing their deaths. I mean, it was, that was, that was tough. And did you sort of limit the hours at the drawing board when you're doing stuff like that? Do you have, you know, another way of sort of having more, you know, something in the tank for tomorrow's work? Do you yes have? No. Yeah, yes and no. Um, with my friend Dahmer, I was still doing my comic strip and other yeah. work. So, I mean, I had like a other job as well. And that was a much more leisurely pace because it took place over such a long period of time. Uh, Kent State was a much more, I mean, I was just doing Kent State and that was a really hard deadline. And yeah, that was, that was tough, but I mixed it up by traveling a lot. Cause I, you know, I do all these comics events and book tours and things. So I would go off to, you know, France for a month on tour and then I'd come back and I'd work on Kent State some more. So that, that helped a little. So as you said earlier that you wish you had another year for Kent State. Oh, mm -hmm. okay, because you were in France for a couple of months, for a well, month or no, two. It was, it was still a tough, well, you yeah. know, your commitments, you got to sell your books. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, all my books are, you know, out in Europe as well, and I get invited to an event. So, I mean, you still have to sell your books. I mean, it's, you know, you just can't focus on just one. I suppose you could, but I don't. The reason why I reached out to you is because I want to, 
change the subject is about censorship. Mm-hmm. And when um, a few months back, when Mouse, did they eventually pull it? Yes, I think they did pull it from the the high school library. Um, I think it was uh, or yeah, a public high library. school library in some shithole in Kentucky somewhere. Yeah. I forget. Yeah, it was about because of this one moment where there's a naked mouse. Right, right. Yeah, um, really ridiculous. And you were talking about, but where have you people been? Where have you been? Because this is actually something that has been going on. And just recently we had, a, what is it, Fun Home get pulled in Connecticut from right. a high school library. Right. Um, and as we were talking before we started recording, this is a game plan. And yep. now because of as some people think, you know, Mouse is like the only comic book or original graphic novel that was ever made. You know, <laughs> now people paid attention. But right. um, what have you been seeing? This goes back, you know, is this, what is the agenda? Basically to blow well, up? the agenda is to win elections. I yeah. Mean, this is how they're, they're energizing the base. Energize they're, the base, yeah. You know, you get these quote-unquote outraged parents mm-hmm. who rise up in a school district and these parents are maybe their parents maybe they're not i mean a lot a lot of times school board meetings are flooded with you know out of town players who come in to swell numbers and and do all kinds of other things um one of the groups behind it well one of the major groups behind it the think tanks a lot of it comes from the heritage foundation yeah. a lot yeah. of it comes from the cokes yep um, and there's another group, uh, I think it's the, uh, uh, a think tank funded by, or a, or a PAC, super PAC funded by the, one of the Schlitz beer hairs. Uh-huh. It was a virulent homophobe. And these are the major players behind it. And one of the groups that really puts this into action is a group called the Parental Rights Coalition which is a designated hate group, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. They've been around since the 70s. And they their big thing was opposing gay marriage, which they were, you know, the front lines of that for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And now they've pivoted to purging libraries and purging school curriculum of any gay lit. And, of course, they zero in on comics because, you know, the right wing always zeroes in on comics. Mm-hmm. Back to the comic book witch hunts of the 1950s, essentially. And the whole thing, oh, comics are for kids, which they haven't right. been, and they aren't in other countries, you know. Right. No, and they haven't been for years here. It's yeah. not she and Jughead, you yeah. know, <laughs> having a gay affair. I thought that would be an awesome comic book. <laughs> um, and that's, that's where they're focusing. And so they're going after... As I told you before, I mean, Mouse was a mistake. Somebody went off, somebody veered from the strategy and went after Mouse, and it blew oh. up in their face. Yep. Because, you know, it's it's not about, there's nothing there that's objectionable. It's, you know, you get into the questions of anti-Semitism. You, you go after a book that's won a Pulitzer Prize, so that really hasn't slowed them down in other in other instances. And it just, it was a mistake. And I don't think it'll be repeated. I don't think Mouse will be targeted again. All it did was send Mouse shooting back up the bestseller list, which Spiegelman didn't really need. <laughs> the books that are really paying the price are, are queer comics. And uh, Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe is the one that is cited, targeted most frequently. And there are a few others. But that's the one. They're going after these personal memoirs of usually coming out. 
Yeah. And that's what they're attacking. And they're saying it's child porn. They're, they're grooming children to be, you know, to turn into transsexual uh, or, or just become, you know, reject their parents and their religion, blah, 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 blah. And so that's where they're targeting it. Home is a distraction to a certain point because that's been so critically acclaimed and rightly so. Um, they're really going after these lesser-known books by lesser-known authors because they feel that, you know, that's an easy target, and it has been for them. And it's coming off of, well, in Connecticut, uh, the same names that I saw in Unmask that were, you know, shepherd, you know yelling for Unmask My Child, you know, in schools. They've yeah, now pivoted to this. Yeah, it's just well, they're culture warriors. Yeah, they're mm -hmm. they're taking they're taking these marching orders and they're trying to energize their base, and it's working to a certain extent. And they go after school board members. I mean, they're very specifically targeting school boards. They flood yep. uh, elections with you know a right wing slate of candidates so they can take over the board all at once. And this is all a playbook coming down from Washington. Um, and the you know the. And the Heritage Foundation. I mean, this is this is the playbook. This is the culture war that's being fought right now. And, you know, progressives really need to wake the hell up because there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, urgency that I see coming from the left. I mean, I've been yelling about this since I became a target of it. Mm -hmm. My daughter was one of uh, 16 books targeted at a school district in suburban Austin. And, you know, we were called everything. I mean, I was called a sex criminal by one of these parents, quote unquote, um, <laughs> for writing a book about, you know, that won a bunch of awards. I'm a sex criminal. I mean, that's the kind of language they're using. And so it's no fun when you're, you're you know, your book, your work is targeted like this. Um, and, and there are no filters on these people. Doesn't matter to them how many awards it won. It doesn't matter how many languages translated into or how many printings there have been. You are a pervert, and that's who they're coming after. Another one they're coming after is uh, *Handmaid's Tale*, both the written version and the graphic novel version. That mm -hmm. is a very frequent. I mean, obviously, if you're yeah. a Christian nationalist, you're not going to approve of that book. Um, so, I mean, this is, this is their agenda and this is their strategy. Now it's, it lately it's been getting, it's been derailed somewhat by some of the, you know, crap that's blown up over the last few months. So that's, that's, kind of, that's good. What, what is that's that? What, what exactly? I mean, this seems to be an evergreen thing for them anyways sure. on motivating their, and where I'm from is that, um, that I was surprised that they're even trying it in Connecticut. And they're succeeding. They succeeded in this one town, but right. they've attacked our our local library just without. I'm like, they can't try to go censor things. They're just saying they've made up other lies about the library to just shut it down. And sure. also, the Heritage Foundation. What little I know about the Koch brothers as libertarians, they don't believe in public education oh, or the, public libraries or public libraries. The end of the, the what their true agenda is just to tear it all down. I mean, if we're going yes. back that. Sure, is... getting back to the weathermen, burn it all down. Mm -hmm. Very definitely they are, except they have a lot more money and a yeah. lot more influence than the weathermen ever had. I mean, it's certainly the greatest challenge I think we're, we're going to face in our lifetime is this extended culture war. How much are they going to destroy by the mm -hmm. time it, or are they going to succeed? I mean, there's this, you know, 
let's not fool ourselves that, that to think that our you know their defeat is inevitable. I don't think that's true at all. So when you got when Dollar came on the radar for them, my what did you feel? I mean, you're like this is nothing that you were trying to do. You were just trying to tell the story that you know, right? right? I mean, the right. the they're just making stuff up. Is that correct? I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, my friend Dahmer is, uh, uh, you know, it's a tough sell. I mean, I'm not going to deny that it's not, yeah. uh, but it's piled up a number of uh, YA awards, a couple from the American Library Association. It's gotten a lot of accolades. So it's been introduced because of that. It got introduced into a lot of high school curriculum. And it's kind of a natural fit because it's about high school. It's about bullying. It's about the indifference of the adult world. It's about kids who fall through the cracks. I mean, it's, you know, in many ways, it's a perfect book for high school kids. Yeah. They seem to really enjoy it. But I always recognized that was not my design. I mean, I just backed into that, you know. Um, I was just trying to tell the story I wanted to tell. But, I mean, I understand why it's been targeted. But uh, there's, you know, whatever, it's usually targeted by people, of course, invariably targeted by people who, one, have never read it Mm -hmm. and really have no idea what it's about. So they just think, you know, well, it's about a gay serial killer. And if you read Dahmer's, you know, what Dahmer did to people and, you know, the crimes he committed, well, yeah, but none of that is in the book. You know, that's not what this story is. So, I, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I mean, I wasn't surprised, but it, it was not, it's not a lot of fun to be targeted by these people. I mean, it's, you know, because, I mean, it, 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 there's also that danger that they're going to come after you. You know, I mean, what we see now is that, you know, they bring legal action against people, they dox people, they harass people. I mean, in terms of school boards and librarians, you'll get like a crowd of right-wing protesters marching up and down in front of their house carrying signs about, you know, a pedophile lives here and stuff like that. I mean, there is no dirty trick that these people will not take on. So, yeah, it's, you know, what they want to do is they want to intimidate people into silence. And, uh, and like I said, there's not a lot of urgency from the allies in the left that are out there. And there's not a lot of, uh, you know, we don't have the financial backing that these right wing groups have. And that's it's not a fair fight right now. The one thing that we have on our side is, you know, truth and reason. Mm-hmm. We'll see how we'll see how far that goes. Yeah, which people have been hitting at that forever. So, right. um, well, I guess one last question is, how do we get the the you know the people who believe in books and supporting libraries motivated? Have you thought about that? And what is the how do you create a pushback, a movement of pushback? Have you ever thought about that? Well, I'm not an organizer, but yeah. somebody up high, up higher up than, you know, mere comics creators needs to start raising a stink about this. You know, I mean, the, the big shots in Washington or in state houses or wherever, somebody needs to start talking about this stuff or in media. And I just don't see a lot of it. You know, they did when mouse got nabbed and then, you know, they ranted about that for a week and then it went away. But the campaign has not stopped. Those people are right back out there purging libraries right now, as we speak, right now. And it, not in just one place. I mean, we're talking dozens and dozens of 
districts, dozens and dozens of counties. I mean, they're everywhere. And it's not even red states. I'm sorry. It's not even red states. It's happening in blue states. It's happening. Yeah, you, like you well, said. Well, it's happening in red parts of blue states. Yeah. I mean, that's how they operate. You know, they, they, they build from the bottom up where the left tends to build from the top down. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, the right seems to be pretty effective at this strategy. That's how they pulled off everything they've pretty much pulled off. And um, so it's working for them. And if we're not going to have any any pushback, uh, we're going to lose that fight. And that's one thing I have noticed is that being involved in local politics of the changes that it can occur in this town and how it sort of spreads beyond. And as I don't know if we've talked about it yet, but the playbook that um, we were talking about before we started recording, there's a playbook to this. And yes. and if you, I think it's easier to sort of build from small town to small town to change this government. You know, you're seeing uh, a militia take over a small town in Shasta, Cal uh, uh, California. And yeah. you, you morph these governments until all of a sudden now they're in the state level. And then they make the jump from the state to the federal level. But at the state level, you're making laws. You know, the state of Connecticut, basically, you know, when um, it looked like Roe versus Wade's going to be turned over, state acted immediately, you know, mm -hmm. but then that can be turned around, you know, sure. it, you know, say in five years. The other thing is that the Heritage Foundation is not only well-funded, they're patient, too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. They yeah. think it's centuries. Mm -hmm. You know, even though you got to say, like, here in Ohio, which is basically a purple state, 50-50. It actually leans slightly blue, but it is completely controlled by the Republican Party because of extreme gerrymandering. Yeah. And and now they've got the, you know, they've got the toadies in place in the federal court system that say, well, that's okay. And so, I mean, we're really in a stranglehold here, and it's, it's you know, it feels an awful lot like the end of representative democracy to me. And that's really what it's all about. And all of this other stuff comes into play. And as you know, as authors and as as literary people, and I mean, we're we're kind of the well, I don't want to use that term. But I mean, we're I mean, we're certainly at the front edge of it. And what's happening to us is is going to happen to everybody else if they have their way. Uh, I guess our hour is up <laughs> on that note. <laughs> so, Dirk, thank you for <laughs> happy note. Uh, but this is what I wanted to talk about and stuff and just sort of, you know, it's one way of getting the word out. I don't know how, you know, to people who listen and just, you know, um, check out your Twitter account. Definitely. Anybody oh, who likes yeah, this I interview. Do. I do. I do amplify whatever comes my way. Um, but there, like I said, there aren't a lot of people who are doing that. But, yeah. Uh, I seem to be shouting into the wind, honestly. So I'd, I'd much appreciate if somebody would pay attention. Well, I was, I listened. It was great, and I have, you know, I believe in what what you're talking about, and I think there is a fight that needs to be fought here, and some of the pushback. So I'm right with there with you. But thank you very much for Kent State. It's a great original graphic novel. My friend Dahmer too. I think I'm going to go reread them again. So, <laughs> and I can't wait. You know, I look forward to seeing uh, your next project. Can you Me even, too. Can you talk about it or is there anything? No, not really. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, I'll be on Twitter looking out for any announcements. But thank you very much for your time. It was great meeting you. And uh, do you have any, any other final words? Or? Oh, that's it. Thanks okay. for having me. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Okay. All right, bye. See ya.